On July 13, 2013, Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation hosted a one-on-one -on -one conversation with acclaimed director, choreographer, and movement director Stephen Hoggett in discussion about his artistic vision, career trajectory, and rehearsal processes. Moderated by Ryan Donovan, the conversation explores Stephen's journey from his beginning as a self-sustaining artist in Wales with Frantic Assembly to his big-budget ventures on Broadway and around the world. Topics discussed include staging musical transitions, budgetary and spatial influences on artistic freedom, the unique aspects of the American theater industry, and the value of deep collaboration when creating theater. Hello, I'm director and fight choreographer Erica Gould, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theater Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. So first, I wanted to uh, start out uh, sort of unorthodox. I want to find out what question are you really tired of answering at these kinds of things? <laughs> Um, I don't get to do these things very often. Um, so that question... No, no. Uh, um, I'll tell you what, if, if you ask me a question and, I, and it's come up over and over again, I, I'll just pull a face. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I thought of it because in, in the, um, the Frantic Assembly book, uh, oh, right yeah, about, yeah, yeah. You, know, you get so tired of, uh, you know, asked, what do you do? What is devised theatre? Yeah. yeah, there was, what is theatre? Mm -hmm. What is physical theatre? Uh, actually, we were just talking about this. In some respects, that that is a. I just feel like it's not our place to talk about that. I think mm -hmm. we, we we make this work, and it provides stimulus for conversations like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and it feels a bit. It feels a bit kind of a, like an avoidance theory, and maybe it is. Um, but I just think we, when we were making the work, we never really went. Okay, so what is physical theatre, and how best do we uh, uh, kind of make that emblematic of what we do? Uh, so yeah, we've we've tended to avoid that. I think as a, as a, as a starter question, um, and how? Yeah, what do you do about your bruises? Was was an early question. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, you know, you've worked in so many different mediums, from opera to musical theater to physical theater, and you know the range that of your work is so vast. Um, and there, you know, there doesn't seem to be quite a pattern to it, um, and it's you know exciting that you're so unpredictable what uh, what draws you to a piece what interests you um, I, th I think um, the kind of underlying factor of that is I think there's a sense of promiscuity that I, I think I'm I think I embody <laughs> strictly in terms of my work not um, not elsewhere but uh, <laughs> um, I do I do feel I mean there was the frantic there's the frantic body of work which is um, which is inc incredibly significant so in some ways, the frantic work I do think has a very has a very clear line through it. Mm -hmm. I think, and also the form of it is is consistent. I think outside of that, perhaps because frantic was such a solid um, event and is such a solid piece of, of of work, in some respects maybe because that's always there, it allows you to kind of play around in other areas. And over a certain amount of time, I think I think it's a, you know it's the same for for a lot of artists. I feel like there there are playwrights in the UK and um, uh, we worked with Brian Lavery quite a lot and she's a real case in point where 
she can write a Brian Labour play in the time it's taken us to speak for the last five minutes. There, there could be a Brian Labour play right there. That she's just gone, okay, I can do that thing. And in certain respects, when you are so well versed within your own um, mode of operation, I think. You can, you can leave it. You have a, Bryony's got a fantastic... Abby Morgan is a case in point. Abby Morgan can write a play in five minutes. She literally can write a play in five minutes. But she, I think what she does, both those women do, is experiment outside their comfort zone. Um, because that, that idea of taking risk is backed up by a very solid understanding of what they do and how they do it. So I think that's part of it. I think... Um, I just think, you know, as, as a kind of as an individual, I find there's just lots of things that I haven't done, mm-hmm. and sometimes it'll be the form of something, sometimes it'll be the content of something, and between those two things, there's you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. to be to be to be looked at. Um, and 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 the other thing to say as well is there's a lot of interesting and exciting artists that are making work around around myself, and so I'm lucky enough to get asked to be part of these companies and part of these projects and working with these people. So it, it's it's also about who who's out there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in lots of ways, uh, as a freelance artist, you're in a position where you will, every now and again you might be at the arrowhead of a piece of work, but a lot of the time you're responding to this company over here or this building or this director that's making this piece over here that you've worked with before. So I think there's lots of lines that ha- that kind of start to interweave, and your your career isn't isn't a straight trajectory right. by any means. I, my experience has been that it isn't. How has it been uh, the transition, I think, from working... At the beginning, you worked mostly exclusively with Frantic Assembly, am I right? Yeah. And how has the transition been from that to becoming more freelance? Um, yeah, tricky. Um, not not always easy. In the sense... Well, it's, it's diaries. It's just looking at a year and kind mm-hmm. of going, well... And with the best... The other interesting thing is the, the bigger that Frantic Assembly became... And in some ways, when I say bigger, I mean the, the kind of the, the size of projects and the long lead-in time. When that became longer, there's more money involved and there was more kind of um, stature involved in who these people were that we were working with and ourselves as a funded company. Um, what's, what's always fascinated me is that the more money is involved and the bigger the names and the bigger the project and the bigger the exposure the more capacity for that project to slide in terms of where it sits in the diary. And when we started Frantic... <coughs> You know, we'd make a show, it cost like 50 quid to make the show, and we'd be like four of us in the back of a van. Mm-hmm. And on the tour plan, it'd be like we'd start here and we'd end here. And then a year later, we would start there and we'd end there. Every single date would be taken care of, and the, and the rehearsals would be there, and these would be the actors. And, this. and it's, it's fascinating how that is not the case when you think it would be, with, you know, like working at the National or working for like the Met, mm-hmm. you know, these big places, and you get in there, and it's like, wow, this is incredible how things slide. Um, how dates shift and change, how you'd think these things were kind of set in stone and they're not. Yeah. So that's been, that's been interesting. Do you feel, um, you know, having worked with, uh, you know, a small budget, like 50 quid in the back of a van, and then going to the Metropolitan Opera House, how, how did you manage that? Uh, you know, is it exciting to <clears throat> work on such a grand scale? I think in lots of ways. It's, it's probably a question that's better answered by a designer or mm-hmm. a lighting designer. I feel certainly for somebody like Christine working at the Met and designing for Rigoletto, she was given just this a resource of lots of people, lots of time, lots you know, a lot of money. People in my position, it's like it's it's bodies and space, so it doesn't really. I mean, you have a you have a nice you have a really nice lunch. Because, you know, <laughs> the, the, food, the food's brilliant. 
and the canteen's great. So, but in some ways, that's the, that can be the measure of how how successful you are, whether your lunch is nice, because you you're, you know you or you audition dancers, and they come from all over the place, and you know the Met gets a lot of people to come and audition for you, but. So does you know working on a, a workshop down at New York Theatre Workshop? You'll get amazing people coming <coughs> through the door, and the same in the UK. You know you'll work at the ENO, and that's you know that's got a fantastic canteen, proper like glass <laughs> everywhere, fresh salmon for breakfast. It's brilliant, but but you'll get the same you'll get the same people coming through the door to work for you. So in some ways, I I often feel like the measure of my, the, my measure of how grand or, or, or um, rough something is, is is the kind of is the food bar, unfortunately. <laughs> so, in other words, the work, your process is the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're yes, you're afforded nicer rooms. Sometimes those rooms don't make sense to me, and I don't enjoy them as much. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like the, the world of, of kind of movement direction and choreography <clears throat> doesn't become affected in that same way uh-huh. because your resources, like I say, are kind of limbs and and space and you you know in the I suppose in those spaces you get a lot more room yeah and you might get a lot more da- actually yeah you you get a lot more bodies if you need them right Definitely. especially at the met yeah um, <laughs> yes um, one thing i wanted to ask you is in uh, in britain you've done everything in theater you've produced designed acted directed um, devised pieces and here in the us you're thought of mainly as a choreographer um, yeah is that what you primarily consider yourself, or is that just a label that we've applied to you here? Um, I think that it's probably quite accurate. <clears throat> I think because uh, in the UK with Frantic, we were, you know, we were directing and choreographing and all of that. Whereas here, the work that I've done has been for other directors. So I've been either a movement director for them or a choreographer. Um, what was interesting was after about a year and a half, two years, at first coming over here, you then end up in conversations with producers or venues or other, other directors asking you what, when you're going to start to direct something, which is really, which is great. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and in some respects, directing for Frantic has meant that I never really needed to do that very much. Mm-hmm. But um, I can already feel like a bit of a sea change. And well, I'm, I'm doing a project at the moment where I'm on paper as the director Strictly, I, I don't. I don't think that's an accurate description of what I'm doing for the for the piece. But um, I, c- I can see. I, I know where this is going, and it's and the op- I, you know there's some there's some really exciting opportunities to to start directing work over here, sure. which um, I, yeah, I'd like to take up. So it, I think it's going that way, which is fantastic. Actually, it feels great. Yeah, um, because you started out in that in a such a collaborative company, um, was that a key ability for you? Uh, as a young artist, uh, or was that a key element in your ability to grow as a young artist, starting out in such a collaborative environment? I think we had to start as a collective because we were so um, ignorant of lots of things. So I, I think you don't mind making a, a, a kind of mess of things as long as you're not the kind of apex of a pyramid of people with expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we made collective errors a lot. Uh, I think I'm just, I just like groups. I just that's how, that's how I, I kind of think I work best when I feel like it's. I, mean, I, I you know I think it's that interesting thing about and certainly with frantic we had this thinking which was there's times in a room where between myself and Scott who was the other artistic director there are, there are moments in a rehearsal space where you have to pull from the front which is you have to be absolutely the, the apex and that seem to be the leaders take full responsibility 
um, and let the group kind of be kind of pulled forward. And there's times when, as a director or choreographer or whatever it is, you're doing, you have to push from the back, which is you get behind everybody else, and you're not the visible thing at the front, but you just encourage and push, and you're seen as at the bottom end of it. You're the strong, solid foundation. And I, I, I do think of any given working day as being you flip between those two roles. So you get the measure of the room. Do I need to be seen up here, or do I need to be seen back here? And you just sit there, and you either push or you pull. Um, and I think working with a group always made that feel really... I, I, I felt like I could always get the measure of that. Yeah. I don't know why that felt kind of comfortable, but I think that's how we were from the start. Uh-huh. So we've held on to it, really. Um, speaking of the rehearsal room, uh, how do you start before you get in there? What kind of uh, pre-production do you do with your team, and how long do you spend? As little as pot. No. <laughs> I think um, it depends on the project. I think... Um, If, if you're working with a piece, music actually is normally the biggest, the biggest, the biggest element that I will have in my head. That if there's if there's give it, if there's already music written for it, then that will be. I, I would have kind of gone through that quite a lot, quite a lot, prior to rehearsals. If there, if there isn't the actual musical event in front of you, I think if there's a if there's an artist or, or certain tracks of music that we're using for the piece. I will have had quite a lot of that in the back of my head and I've written down kind of or, or drawn out some ideas for physical events or sequences or um, exercises that might fit some of those tracks. Um, but I, I think in lots of ways, we've always said that we, you know, we're fancy particularly, we, don't, we go in there with, we buy, we buy new notebooks because we, we're stationary whores. <laughs> and we like new stationery and new pens. We're like kids, first day of school. I like a new notebook. Um, and the idea being that day one you open it and there's nothing on that page. So in lots of ways there's not the kind of... We don't sit there with a book full of answers mm-hmm. and then make our cast try and figure out what those answers are. And then when um, you go to some place like the Met and you're doing Rigoletto and the music is set, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, that's... That, do you the, show up with the choreography finished? With the Met, I had to because it was three weeks rehearsal mm-hmm. with a chorus of 52 men who, who don't move, who don't, who don't, <laughs> don't. Uh, or if they do, um, if they do, it's, it's, it's kind of, well actually, there's a, there was a kind of hierarchy of, of guys that, uh, you know, had done, there's some, there's some, you know, one-time dancers in that company, and there's some guys in there that just park and bark. They just stand, face the front, and they open the mouth, and it comes out. So, so that that was a lot of prep. To be honest, I, the Met, the Mets are kind of you know it's kind of an, an anomaly because I, I've never worked anywhere where I've had to change everything that I understood about practice in my in my entire working life. So I, we did I did quite a lot of prep, and I worked with some dancers in a studio, and I, um, Michael Mayer came along, and we we looked every I think I had something like. I had every dancer represented eight or ten men. So um, you're in a room and you're kind of going, okay, so you're, t- you're, you're nine people, you're eight people, you're ten people. So th- that, that happened, mm-hmm. and I kind of thought I'd got all that sorted. And then you get in the room, in the rehearsal room, and obviously these 52 men turn up, and you're like, oh, my God, I have no idea what to do with you lot now. Um, so so I, prepped, but I prepped a lot, and, I didn't, and, I, and a lot of it didn't work, if I'm honest. Um, but yeah, you're, and you're working with a score, and it's uh, and again, you know, we, we, I've done a Shakespeare, but the guy, the guy's dead, and nobody looks after his estate like they do. Like the Met looks after yeah. a score, which is that every single note um, is absolutely sacred, and every single pause 
is there for a reason, and you can't, you know, you can't ask for a vamp. Um, <laughs> and you can't ask for, can I just, four more bars here, just, just, just give me four more bars. Or you can't even ask for, like, can we just hold a breath there? There's, like, there's none of that. So you find yourself, like, about to ask a question, you think, somebody's going to kill me if I ask this question. Um... My associate, I think she did. She asked. For, she asked for a van one day. She actually asked for a van. Um, luckily, I wasn't in the room when it happened. But um, yeah, you've, it's, it's, a, it's a very, um, and you know that. You know, you're, to go into the Met, you, you you do know that. Yeah. But it's still, it's still, it's, it's shocking just how, how you're reminded what you what you have been doing all your working life, and then to go to somewhere like that, mm-hmm. and realise that this place is where you have you have no right to ask certain questions that you think are your God-given right yeah. to ask those things of a, of a, of a, you know, of a composer or, or, a, or a room full of people. But it's, it's authoritative um, uh, voices in that room. And they are amazing. They are absolutely amazing. And you learn a lot. And the conductor as well was just this guy and he just would not, he would let certain moments breathe and other moments like, no, it has to be like this because of this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. And you realise that he's tracking a, a musical arc through this piece and I thought I understood musical arc, but I, this guy was just devastatingly brilliant <laughs> and humbling. So it was brilliant. It was great, and, and, it's, and it's kind of it's kind of a bit terrifying as well. Was it a challenge to uh, work with something that had so many pieces, uh, moving pieces? Because I know you know, for, in once, for instance, it's basically a bare stage aesthetic. Yeah. And in Black Watch, same. Yeah. You know, to be honest, Rigoletto wasn't a lot of. The, well, it's, it's opera, so it kind of sits there, and then right. the curtain goes down, and you all have to go and get a drink, a very expensive drink, for, for 40 minutes, and then you come back and we've moved everything. Right. So in lots of ways, the moving pieces were the men, uh-huh. the chorus, because we made the decision not to have... There were 12 dancers that we, we kind of mingled in, uh-huh. but in lots of ways, the, the chorus of men were our dancers. Yeah. So it wasn't... I, I got away with it, really. I didn't have to deal with sliding sets and things like that, things mm-hmm. flying in. Um, speaking of music and uh, how do you how you work with it, um, you know, and and most choreography in musical theater is very step and count oriented. Like this happens on seven, this happens on two, um, and you write that uh, in rehearsals you never teach steps. So, um, but that you also don't really um, make people improvise in a vacuum. You right. know, you give them constraints. So, yeah. how did you? Uh, you know, when you work when you're working in a musical, how do you uh, go about teaching the choreography? Um, so far, I have to, I have to make sure. I'm, I, I think most of the work I've done in terms of musicals has been uh, musicals that they're, they're new, they're new musicals. So there isn't a template, and you know, the big thing for me is that if I'm in a room with that company then that, that work exists within the bodies of those people in that room that I'm with mm-hmm. and not, not in my... I mean, there's, there's parts of it that will be from, from my physicality, but um, if we're there in a room together as a collective, then in some ways what's, less, what's more boring than everybody dancing like I do or moving like I do? Because unless we're making a piece about Stephen Hogger then it doesn't make much sense for you all to kind of have that kind of look like a barrel on stage and roll around. (laughs) So, um, most pieces that you work on, they're about populace in some sense or another. Mm -hmm. So, something like American Idiot, it's about these kids. And for a start, I'm twice as old as half of them, so that doesn't make any physical sense. And, And also, you know, they're actors, they're not dancers, but they've got brilliant 
you know, given the right exercise, and you know, a, a, any collective becomes a kind of fantastic uh, a creative palette for you. So I guess the, th- the thinking is, you, you know, it's about setting up exercises in the rehearsal room and 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 getting you know a collective to make physical material. And then being in front of that and kind of going, yes, 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 yes. Or, and, and you start to see kind of patterns or, or not patterns sometimes. About, you know, or actually, that person over there makes work that's incredibly kind of polar to this person over here. So that's the spectrum of this particular exercise. Let's work within those two polar opposites and make that person teach that person their choreography. And that, you know, so it's about just using the people in the room. I, I, do, I do find that that's the bottom line of it, really. It's like those people are there... Um, that, that's who you've got for five weeks, um, and if it's not, you know, if in a crisis, I'll stand at the front and say, okay, let's, I'll, I'll give you a, a two bars of eight. This is the world we want to be in, and we'll all learn that. Yeah. And you know, if, if if the exercise isn't quite landing, then absolutely, I'll stand at the front and, and count one to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, yeah, for me, I, I'm I'm not interested in, in watching people move like me. Um, I don't think the world would pay money to see lots of people move like me anyway, and I I don't. Uh, yeah, mirrors. Don't like mirrors. Um, I think, I think a, 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 mirror, a, a room full of mirrors. Uh, I think intrinsically suggests that I want a kind of homogenous event, and I don't. And I don't normally work on those kind of pieces of work. So you're looking, you know, you're looking to the actor as an individual rather than you're in the chorus as you know, not trying yeah. to make them uniform or uh, conform but, to a certain. Movements. Yeah, style. I mean, I'd be an idiot to work like that because so I don't. I, I like with an American idiot piece. I'm working with actors, not dancers. Mm-hmm. So that if I spent kind of five weeks trying to polish like a high kick with a group of people like that, they would just leave, right. or they just they just wouldn't bother turning up the day after. So in some ways, it's about just looking at what you've got in the room, and I, I, I like that. I prefer that. If I, I I saw a chorus line recently actually, and what was it was um it was a British. Uh, production. The one in London. The one in London, London yeah. yeah. And what's what's kind of what's kind of depressing about it, not the piece, but as an audience, when they go to the high kick, you're looking for who's not quite doing the high kick. And I, I'm not one of those purists about line. I wouldn't even know what a good line was, but I still was like, oh, she got that wrong. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's awful. It's awful. Well, and and when it when it works, it's absolutely. Yeah. When that kind of choreography comes together and people are, um, I remember seeing the, uh, the Pina Bausch Rites of Spring. And just watching that and thinking, I have never seen such beautiful work in terms of a, a, a you know, a, I think what she does brilliantly is a Pina Bausch piece will absolutely have character and individuality, and then she'll just lock in and they become this one event. And I don't know anybody else that makes it that special. Um, so I, I guess I'm saying that within the even within a Pina Bausch, I'm thinking some, someone's going to crack at any minute now because this is too good, yeah. it's too sustained, and it doesn't. It, it stays there. It's that it's that locked in, and that's what makes that work so thrilling. Well, I think her work is also very much created by the individual, and then she shapes it. Yeah, she shaped it. Um, yeah, and then. Uh, Suddenly, there's a beautiful moment of unison dancing yeah. that comes out of nowhere, and I, I read somewhere uh, that you know uh, you were really inspired by that in the film Boogie Nights. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know when that kind of thing happens, that suddenly, almost out of context. Yeah, I think I think the sequence is you're, you're following Roller Girl around the nightclub, uh-huh. so she's on her boots and she's serving people and. She goes past Mark Wahlberg for a bit, and then she goes into the kitchen. She grabs some food. She comes back out, and she says, "And I think she ends up on the dance floor at one point, and everybody just clicks into that. It's unison, really sexy unison. It lasts about forty seconds, and then it's done. And then she's off somewhere else, 
bending over a table somewhere and yeah I think we, we talked about that a lot just that it was I think he's really smart as well as a director he's very very flirtatious with form um, and so he, he genuinely gives you the impression that he's not going to go there and then he sneaks it in and then he leaves it mm-hmm. so I think that was really he does it in a, a Magnolia as well with the, sing- the fact that there's a unified song right. so it comes out of absolutely nowhere you'd argue that it's really bad in terms of arc and, con- and context but um, I think the audacity of it pulls it, pulls it through your expectations um, yeah so things like that are really I think we love I think with, with certainly when, we're working with, when I'm working with Scott just citing those examples of work where you're just, your heartbeat just goes a little bit quicker from mm-hmm. the duration of the event and goes back down again. That, those things are important. Did you think about that, uh, or was that conscious when you were creating the movement for Black Watch, that suddenly there would be, these soldiers would you know, stop this sort of realistic uh, scene and suddenly start this beautiful movement? I want to complain about Blackwatch, uh-huh. and I've said this before, <laughs> which is that it was made seven years ago now. It was 2006, uh-huh. and so we'd we've been talking about it. I've been talking about it with John for about ten months prior to that, and so the kind of, we rehearsed it in summer. And it, when it came to kind of uh, it was February or March of that year, and Neil Murray, who was the producer at NTS, said we found a venue for. Blackwatch at the festival, which is this drill hall. So it's like a it's like a hangar, uh, and it's it's quite long, and it's it's the floor was concrete, and in one end there was like a, a kind of articulated truck, and at this end there was like this this kind of it just full of, it's full of shit. I swore. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, um, it's just full of rubbish. You can edit that. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, it was a very precise space, and they said, "Do these dimensions work?" And I said, "Well, yeah, we can we can definitely make it. because it was about that with the audience on two sides. So it was about the length and breadth of the space. So they gave us the dimensions of the space. We were shown this rehearsal room. We were working where you could, we could work to that space as well, which was great. You don't always have your space out there for you. And the the, the one thing that Neil was really adamant about, he said, "You know, it's it's a kind of you know it's a it's a big piece for us. It's our big piece at the festival this year." It's never going to go on tour because it's it's so site-specific. It will play for three weeks and we'll give you all the resources you need, but you but go for it. Be be as brave as you want because this will never never go anywhere else ever again. <laughs> so we did. And so in, interestingly, uh, I think the, the 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 most work we did was on the script because Greg sent and Greg worked with us on a, uh, um, the first draft of Blackwatch was, was very very different to the piece that got made. And that's where a lot of the focus went. Um, and then, yeah, and so then subsequently, of course, Blackwatch is the show that all of us that have been involved in it, we, it, it kind of became our, our kind of, well, we talk about our lives and careers pre-Blackwatch and post-Blackwatch. So it was the, the piece that launched a lot, a lot of careers. Yeah. Um, and the irony being that that was the piece that was never going to tour, ever. Um, and that you were given complete freedom. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. Well, he, I mean, he kind of said, it's, you know, if, it, if it's an absolute unmitigated disaster, it's on for three weeks. It's fine. Let's 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 be the company. Let's be the National Theatre of Scotland and make these audacious kind of pieces of work where, as a group of artists, you kind of you're, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, your lead producer, yeah. take risks, take all the risks. So then, of course, when we came, when it then got this tour, I, I mean, all of us were like, I can't believe you've got a tour of this show you swore blind that this would never happen so part of it was like oh, I, was ne- I nearly swore again and it was like 
we had to then go back to the piece and that first tour um, what was really interesting was if I'm honest there's a, there's a much smoother version of Blackwatch that we, that we might have made and when I look at it when I looked at even that first tour we had this big conversation which was it's really rough and in terms of sometimes where that physicality comes from I arced, I, there was an arc through it that I, was, I still think is, is, is kind of what I would have done um, in terms of how um, how you introduce physicality to an audience so they don't suddenly go, oh, they're, they're dancing, I'm gonna, I need to stop watching because I don't understand this bit, or this is not for me. So that bit, I think, I, I still look at it and go, that, we did that, we achieved that. But in terms of how it segues and how it, um, how it moves through the piece, how those pieces arrive and disappear, it, it's, it's, still, it's, it's, it's rough around the edges. And I've, I've purposefully not done anything about it. Mm-hmm. Because it feels slightly kind of, I don't know what the word is. I, I'm slightly cheating, I think, if I suddenly kind of finesse all those things. Um, and for whatever reason, it seemed to work for uh, that first that first time round. And this stuff, we, we have changed little bits of it. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, of course, you know, with anything, you go back to it and you could have, you could have made big changes. But I, with Blackwatch, I've left it alone. I haven't done what I, I've done on other pieces of work. Um, a lot of uh, the directors and choreographers that do these uh, conversations talk about the importance of transitions. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, how do they go about staging them, etc. Um, and especially in musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people say that staging a musical is all about the transitions. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that? And Absolutely not. No? If I never do another transition in my life, I'll be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> They're a necessary evil, and I get it. But ultimately, what you're doing is you're you'll be asked to do the scene changes. Right. Um, horrible, absolutely horrible. It's, it's, it's soul destroying, and it's boring, and you're serving something that's a, you know just perfunctory. And and I spend half my life doing them, and that's what we do. Uh-huh. Um, do you wait until you're in tech to do them, or do you think? No, about you, can't, it? you can't even do that. You have to do them in the rehearsal room. Um, look. I, 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 as far as I see, that if you put if you're if you're choreographing or if you're movement director on a piece, you can if you're if you're in a, if you're on a uh, if you're on a sweet job, you'll spend most of that rehearsal period creating physical narrative, mm-hmm. and the rest of the time you'll be doing how you get that chair from there to there, or you'll be doing how do we get from a shop to a cliff top, or that that's the that's the other part of it. Now, in terms of the the kind of timeline of my experience in a rehearsal room. The less I can do of that, and the more I can do of the physical narrative, the happier I am. Mm-hmm. I, that bit's, you know, absolutely, I'll do as much of that as is needed. But um, it's, it's by far secondary for me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, um, it's not what... I, I, that's harder. That's much harder. Because there isn't a... Um, you can't interpret whether that, how that chair gets from there to there. It has to do that. So there's nothing... You can't workshop that. <laughs> Unless it turns into a, a kind of photon and becomes this thing that disappears and appears, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing interesting about. There is. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being kind of facile. There, there is, and and there was. I, actually, it happened down in New York Theatre Workshop. I've got a really close friend who came to see once, and she went, "I loved your scene changes. They were so beautiful." And I wanted to kill her. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh god, I've made that show. And also, you, and you become you become that person that does great scene changes, and then you end up doing scene changes all your life, and. And that happens. That absolutely happens. And you know, it's and it's a mark of you know people appreciating the work, which is brilliant. 
but you, you have to be mindful you have to be careful of those things and certainly with things like Blackwatch I got asked to work on pieces and I just saw there was lots of costume changes and I knew exactly why because there's a costume change sequence in Blackwatch that lasts for lasts for eight minutes it's just, a, it's just an eight minute costume change but you tend to get lots of jobs with costume changes and you're really like I know exactly why I've got this script in my hand and no I can't do that because I, if, I, if I see costume change again I'm going to scream because right. I'd, I'd spend a week making an eight minute costume change so it's that thing about just being careful about what you've had a go at before mm-hmm. and scene changes are a thing and directors shouldn't have to be you know if, if you're a movement director that's your job that's what you're there to do. Mm-hmm. But if I could have my way, I'd probably have... I'd probably invent a role where you just be the choreographer of scene changes. And other people can do that brilliantly. And I, I'll just do the narrative stuff. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's tricky. And, and at times... At times, it's, it's, it's hard. I think, I think part of it as well is... I'm, I think I'm at my happiest when I'm asking a company of people to, just, to, to be imaginative and to think laterally. So if you're making a physical sequence, I don't need to know what it is right now. Just make something that's visceral for yourself and that you get it, but don't, don't figure out my expectation of it just yet. And throughout a rehearsal process, you end up make, getting this kind of very rough but kind of beautiful work. And, and you, together with your company, you work through the five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. With the scene change stuff, I don't ever feel like I'm ever legitimately able to say, now just be imaginative. Like I say, chair A to chair B is chair A to chair, to chair B. Yeah. And whether we pass it through 20 hands before it gets there, that's, you know, that's kind of... It's, it's interesting and it gives them a kind of, a, some kind of area for, for interpretation. But it's always... It, it's a kind of reductive event in some ways. Um, so it's, it's just not my favourite. Mm-hmm. God, I've gone on about that for a long time, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of being the choreographer versus the mm-hmm. movement director... Yeah. Um, I think all of us in New York are excited about the upcoming production of The Glass Menagerie with Cherry Jones, for which you're the movement director. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you worked on that? Uh, I, the I, ART? Yeah, I, I have to say it's the easiest thing I've, I've ever worked on, and I think I can't believe that more... I, I haven't seen all the productions of Glass Menagerie, but if you read this script, Tennessee Williams is formidable with um, physicality. So I just did what the script said in mm-hmm. the stage directions. I've done very little that's new. Um, there's, there's even a, there's a there's a there's a moment in it where um, Celia, uh, the Celia Keenan Bolger, she is in the living room and there's an argument going on, and there's a whole thing with her hands, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I got credit for it, and it's not it's not my credit. It's it's in the script. Uh-huh. He talks about her physicality while they're having an argument in the living room, in the kitchen. Um, well, he, so, he wrote such detailed stage directions for that, and they're brilliant. Yeah, they're absolutely brilliant. So I, I, I feel a little bit, um, I feel a bit ersatz about that production because uh-huh. it's not, it's my view, but it's it's his ideas. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, it's it's there to be had. When you're working really. on uh, something that's beloved like that, or just very, you know, uh, part of the culture, do you feel uh, expectations? Uh, imposed upon you because something's so well known? Um, I, 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 no. Um, I don't quite know why not. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, maybe, maybe it's the, I don't know that many people that are madly in love with Glass Menagerie. Mm-hmm. If I'm honest. <laughs> I don't know that many people are mad, madly in love with theatre. 
most of my, mo- you know, a lot of my friends come because I make them. Um, so I guess, uh, I, yeah, I'd, in some ways there was I. We just I worked with John just recently on a production of Let the Right One In, which is based on a movie. And there's more people I know that were about, a bit like, oh, what are you going to do with that then? Yeah. And very kind of, oh, what, what have you done with the? Is it is it still a swimming pool at the end? And is that you know, very very kind of guarded about that. So I think in terms of my immediate people around me, they're more kind of suspicious about let the right one in and whether we've fucked it up uh-huh. or whether. <laughs> um, uh, whereas Glass Menagerie, there's yeah, there were a couple of kind of people that asked kind of not not awkward questions, but that were clearly kind of like oh what and what's the how physical is it? Yeah. Uh, but more our kind of version of a film elicited more kind of kind of caution and a, and a kind of probing questions um, yeah I, th- I, I think that's the, I think that's a, that's probably true yeah. of the people I'm around right well and certainly Rocky is going to be <laughs> you know another one yeah that, yeah I, I'm a, I am I'm, I would say I'm more I'm more cautious I'm more uh, anxious about Rocky than I am Glass Menagerie uh-huh. despite the fact that I do think I do think it achieves what I think it's going to be a real surprise people because uh, th- I, I think it works I really do think it works and it's Alex Timbers um, it's, it's his genius in the fact that he's he's absolutely not, not going to let a moment of sentimentality land on stage it doesn't mean he doesn't do sentiment brilliantly because he does mm-hmm. but he always gets the measure of it and it was hard for the actors because he's got such a kind of uh, a kind of um, Forensic view of what that is, and and I, I and I sat with him throughout that entire process. Uh, the, the Rocky has been playing in Hamburg for ne- for nearly a year, and um, so we made it in in German, which had its own challenges. But um, I, I still I and I so I sat and I was, I was trying to figure out how he's got this kind of almost like this spectrum of acceptability, and it's so precise and it's brilliant. Um, and I think that's if it if it does very well over here, which I think it. it I hope it does. Um, that's that's the, that's the success of it mm-hmm. because he gets it just right, and that's I think in terms of that original film, it had no sense of what it was. So again, it, it kind of that thing about sentiment, it just checked itself a lot yeah. and didn't kind of even as a seventies film, it was it was very well put together. Considering it was filmed in something like twenty days and you know a tiny budget, so yeah, it, it, it's it's. But it's a, it's a thing, you know. It's, yeah. To bring that work here, it's it's a it's a kind of challenge. Now that you're uh, playing in this, you know, bigger commercial sandbox with shows like Rocky, American Idiot, um, Black Watch, going on tour, and you have to go back and revisit something that you've created a year before or three years before. Yeah. What's that like for you to to come back? Do you make changes a lot or? Um, not um, not much, if I'm honest. I tend not to, um, but I'm the kind of person where t- analogy I'll give you is that I, I've got I've got an iPod, and if it gets scratched a lot in like the first six weeks, I don't get upset about that. In some ways, I, there's something about the kind of temporal nature of things that I really like, mm-hmm. and so a scratched iPod, I kind of go, well, this is the life it had with me. And my iPod's a disgusting specimen at the moment, <laughs> but, it, but it's, that's what life has been like in my bag for five years and it, with piece of work I kind of look at it and maybe selfishly 
uh, I kind of look at a piece like Blackwatch and knowing that I would do that slightly differently, I would that's that's a bit scruffy. I, I quite like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to kind of it gives it gives me the measure of where my thinking is. Um, if there's if there's <coughs> if there's moments in that are really not 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 right, or if you're sat in an audience and you've made something. You make something over here, and then the audience over there really don't see it or don't understand it. Then you'll then I'd, I'd change that. Mm-hmm. For myself, I, d- I don't I don't try and keep myself interested by tweaking stuff for myself. Uh-huh. If if a version of the show isn't quite working, if a performer of a certain physical track isn't quite able to do that thing, then you know there's no point making that pushing that point. So there's I think there's practical com- there's practical things that happen mm-hmm. where you have to. Um, but I don't do it for my for my own self interest, no. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a there's a, um, a moment in it's like things come up out of nowhere. There's a moment in once where uh, the the woman that plays um, Borushka, which is the girl's <coughs> mother, she has to walk across the bar and jump up and sit on it. Now, and Nathan, she's you know she's sprightly; she can jump up onto a bar and sit on it. The uh, the woman who plays the part in in London can't do that. So it's you know things like that. It's like well, what's that? What's the elegant route around that? So there's there's enough in a remount of a show. There's always enough to be doing and to be looking at people and saying that actually looks terrible on you. Or or the 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 the, the other element that happens is, um, certainly with Blackwatch, we had no idea what the show was going to be like. Um, and so our first ten cast members were Scottish. So by their nature, they had terrible diets. No, they then got a muscle on their body. They had no stamina. <laughs> they they felt sick all the time during the walks. Um, they couldn't lift each other. You know, there was there was nothing. There was it was awful. Um, and then what's happened over the years is this, you know, there's, it's I, I, it is a truism. There's there's guys that see Blackwatch and then go to drama school, and then they want to do that kind of work. And and, and in drama schools in Scotland, particularly, there's a massive physical component now. So there's all these guys come out with like massive arms, and we're like, oh, you can be in Blackwatch. So so now Blackwatch just has changed a lot just because the skill set got better. Those first ten boys were brilliant, and they got to a point where that physical work was brilliant, you know, amazing. But yeah, you, it, there are American Idiot was the same thing. You know, the, the, the ten people that have been, the, the sixteen people that were in the American Idiot were chosen because they could sing well yeah. and looked different. I didn't audition a single person for American Idiot. I got given the entire company, mm-hmm. so I never had a say in who was on the stage. And so we made that version, and we had like all kinds of shapes and sizes, which is exactly how it should have been. Yeah. Um, and then subsequently on the tour, um, the skill set was better. Just because those people had either seen it or they were cho- or given what we knew the show was, you choose that you, you you cast it differently. Right. So American Idiot got more pneumatic and more ballistic uh-huh. on the tour, I think. So yeah, you this like I say, the actual the, the 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 process of putting a show back on its feet inherently you will be you will be tested about what you do with that second version. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, other than the individuals themselves, not not much for myself. Mm-hmm. How much do you rely upon uh, assistance uh, when you're remounting something? I'd never had one until I came to America, uh-huh. and I had to interview people for American Idiot, and I, I interviewed four four people, and I it was I was, I was awful. I had no idea what to ask them. I was absolutely rubbish, um, and they hadn't seen anything that. I'd, oh, some of them had seen Blackwatch. But it was just—it was kind of—it was excruciating. I, I, I was in the—I was in the offices of the production company, and uh, and they'd, they'd given me a time schedule. It was—it was half an hour 
for each person. So it sounded like there was one person at four, one person at four thirty, one five o'clock, one five thirty, and at ten past four she was out the door because I just had nothing to say. We had nothing to say to each other. <laughs> and um, Tom Holtz, the producer, came in and was like, "Is, is that okay?" I was like, "Yeah." I said, is, is she amazing? I was like, oh, I don't know really. He said, oh, why have we got rid of her so soon? I was like, oh, we've finished. And he was like, oh, okay. And then 4.30 came along and at 4.40, the guy was out the door. And Tom was like, okay, I need to sit with you for a second. What are you doing to these people? And uh, yeah, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't my finest hour. Saying that, I, did, I found um, Lauren Lataro, who I've worked with um, ever since on, on, on a number of projects. Um, so I absolutely looked out and she, yeah, she's amazing. And we've got, a, you know, this incredibly creative relationship now. And she actually taught me how to speak to somebody in those positions because she, she said you were, you were terrible. <laughs> well, that's nice, uh, you know, the yeah. honesty. Um, <laughs> she, after I'd given her the job, she said that. Not, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not during the interview. Right. The interview. Um, going back a little bit... Uh, Speaking of making changes and everything, uh, do you use the preview process for that a lot? And when do you know it's time to to let something go or to tweak? Okay, well, this is another thing with America that I'm working on that on the scale of something like American Idiot. I can't, I could not handle the amount of previews. It did my head in, and it happened in um, and Hamburg was really hard because you're watching a show in German for three and a half weeks. And it's just, it's very hard. And also, in Rocky, my bits are at the beginning. I've got four minutes at the beginning and 16 minutes at the end. So I've got a long time of sat watching people sing in German about a pet shop. So there's things about it that, that kind of, And I've got, ten, you know, I'm slightly kind of attention deficit disorder when it comes to being kind of interested. So I find it hard. Um, on Let the Right One In, we had three previews. Yeah, three. Um, now that's a little bit it's a little bit short and we got caught out a little bit um, but somewhere in between the, the piece we're making at New York Theatre Workshop I think we, we had, a cho- we, had a, we got given a choice of having nine previews or something like 16 and we've gone for nine mm-hmm. um, and it depends on the work look I think Rocky it's, it's a lot there's, lo- there's masses of stage ultimate um, the stage moves a lot there's a lot of automation so there's certain projects where you kind of go look they, we need a long preview period um, but I, I'm not I'm not a massive I'd, I'd rather put my foot on the, on the gas and for a team to work you know really kind of hard at things mm-hmm. um, so and also I think I think because well, with Frantic we, we we've never had more than two previews before an opening night never so I think my 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 kind of creative head when I'm looking at a timescale, my vision is that that last day of rehearsal, you've got to have a lot of it right. Mm-hmm. And then your tech is, you know, you, do, you work as hard as you can to make sure you've got that transfer from rehearsal room to stage, which is all, you know, always um, complex and, and, and quite nerve-wracking. Because um, you, you can, you know, you can make beautiful re- um, shows that work in a rehearsal room and then put it on a stage and it doesn't hang together. That's always a, that's always a concern. Um, but I think... I always try to make sure that rehearsal version, that last day of rehearsal, as much as possible, that's that's kind of as good as I could have made it. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't like making things during the tech. Um, I do. Uh, there's something about those when you start to hear, listen to audiences. Um, that's always that's always that's always fascinating, actually. Just seeing where the kind of the cadences of the show are falling apart, or whether that physical motif is kind of uh, reading. 
or whether the, the arc that you've made um, is doing what it should. So, of course, an, uh, listening to an audience is always vital. Um, but again, it's that thing about you know just just making sure that you just res- you know don't wait five shows to, to to kind of implement what you knew on that first show because the audience just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. You know, audiences vary a little, but not not a lot. Your matinee to an evening audience is the biggest kind of um, disparity, I think. And um, but if you if you're kind of true to kind of if you're if you're willing to sit in audience and really listen to them rather than you know you can you can end up being quite defensive. Well, they're a matinee audience; they're all over sixty. Yeah, but they all still to be there you know but yeah, once you've got over those kind of things um, yeah I, pref- I prefer to kind of work quickly and 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 not play not not think about process being something that's uh, kind of um, there to be indulged mm-hmm. so you're focused on the um, on the end rather than the means at a certain point um, Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. For when, the most does, part. when does that happen in rehearsal for you? That it becomes less about the process and about the finished product. Um, if I'm working with a music track of any kind, normally in my head I've got an idea about how I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that I'll aim for that straight away. Um, and we there was a piece we made called Stockholm where we learned this this lesson about. Um, creating, generating material, which is that if you've got a group full of willing, like if there's a group full of willing performers, sometimes their willingness is the thing you need to be mindful of. Um, so in Stockholm, it was only two, it was only two performers. Um, uh, it was about a domestically violent couple, and at the end of the piece, they they have a, they have a fight in a kitchen that we knew was the kind of the physical um, apex of the physical arc of the show, and. Um, they, the both of them were really, really good physical performers, and so we had this this hunch that if we asked them to make a fight, they'd probably make a great fight, but it wouldn't be them at their most interesting. It might be them at their kind of most dynamic, but it might not be the most interesting. So we decided to dupe the, the pair of them, and we said to them, "We're going there's there's a sequence in the middle where they're completely in beautifully in love, and we understand the harmony of a man and a woman." in this kind of seven-year relationship, and then we'll let the rest of the show spill away from that point. And they're like, oh, that sounds great. So they made this duet in the f- second week of rehearsal, and it was absolutely beautiful. And they had, a, um, they had um, a tea towel between them, and the whole thing took place in the kitchen, just t- a man and a woman in a tea towel, and it just transferred, and they used it to catch each other. Da, da, da. So far, so good. Um, and it was when we used really beautiful music, there's probably some, you know, some Arvo pet going on or something in the background and then in week two we said okay that duet it just feels a little bit too soft so can you just kind of give it a bit more dynamism we might have started using something a bit more full musically for them to do it too and they start to kind of give it a bit more charge around the room and then week three we said harder and they pushed it harder and harder week four we took the tea towel out of the way and you had to grab each other's clothes instead of the tea towel and week five we said okay played some pounding music and you've got to brutalise it pound each other around the kitchen so that's how we got the fight at the end of Stockholm. Now, uh, as an idea, we didn't know this at the time, but actually, as the more we watched it, it was like, well, this is, of course, this is how you make a fight. Because that fight isn't two people that never knew each other arguing over a kind of, you know, arguing over a butter knife. It's because they've been in love. So the, 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 the fact that this material came from this beautiful, loving duet that had just cracked was actually the only way we should have made that duet. But Prior to this, we probably would have said, okay, guys, fight time, st- get stuck in. Yeah. So I would say that there is an end result in my head, mm-hmm. but 
I've learnt enough to not aim for the end point straight away, or not to communicate that, which is slightly, you know, you, you are kind of, you are being duplicitous, but I think it's, I think it's for good reasons. Yeah. And if you do it right, then the, your, your company will still trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, you've lied to them. You've, you've blatantly lied. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's be clear about that. Um, <coughs> but it, it makes for better results. Yeah. Genuinely, if your if your company are, are kind of are, are interested and interesting physical beings, then they will give you something you would never have imagined by going the the lo- kind of long way around. Uh-huh. It's you know I would still push those sessions to be kind of tight and we you know get a result, get a result, get a result, get a result, and then have your peace. Do you often uh, lie or withhold your intention when you're communicating with actors? Always. <laughs> no. Um, um, no. I think a lot of the time, I think it, it, it's, uh, no, it, it, it's a vital element because I think, again, if you're making brand new work, um, you're asking them to take a massive risk. And, and the other thing as well is that most actors, actors um, will say a line in 101 ways and feel completely you know, centred and, and, and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the performers I get to work with they're not dancers and they are you make them incredibly vulnerable um, and you can have the boldest kind of actor in the space who can tackle any line just you know be really present and give them a, 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 music, a, a kind of physical phrase and you just see them kind of go well I, I, I feel very exposed and I feel very vulnerable so you, have, you, you need to take responsibility for that much and so I think uh, levels of honesty are really important mm-hmm. very important um, and that means if something's you know, if, if, if I've set a tax, task that makes the whole room just look a bit odd, I'll take responsibility for that. Um, if, if I think somebody needs to be pushed, that they're holding back on something physically, I, I, I'll be responsible for that comment as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very important to, because you need to, just, you need to take responsibility for their, uh, their emotional well-being. And, and working physically is, is you know, the, the thing about working physically is you bypass... A lot of a lot of um, protective parts of your your, your neural activity, um, so people expose themselves. That's that didn't sound right. <laughs> people people physically are kind of exposed in certain in certain ways, and I'm, I think I'm, I try to be really conscious of that, um, and try to make sure that as a company they know that I'm watching with that in my mind. That I'll only let them drop so far before we'll either you know stop and talk about it or or say that's that's. You know that's really vital that you feel that way, and let's let's make something of that. Or you go, great, let's finish it right there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you have to, I think that 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 honesty about what you're looking at. Because the other thing as well is, if if this is a rehearsal room, I, I'm in a really privileged position. I'm looking that way. At best, these guys are all looking at each other, but sometimes not. So yeah, that this position that you're in here is incredibly kind of privileged, mm-hmm. and you need to kind of be. You need to give something back for the fact that you've been able to sit here and watch that. Right. Let's see. We have maybe 10 or 15 minutes before we're going to take some questions. So I want to um, talk a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are from where you started. Um, as, uh, you know, maybe a, like the arc of your career and... Uh, uh, so you started out and uh, you did it all on your own. None of you took survival jobs. Um, did you do that? Did you feel that that was 
the only way you knew how, or it was just out of necessity? I think we ha- um, both. Both. I think we we came out of university and wanted to start a theatre company, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the the one smart thing we realised was that it's 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 going to be about art and it's also it has to be about business. So the three of us, there were myself and Scott, the artistic directors, and Vicky um, Coles, who was the producer, and we called ourselves these things. We didn't even know how to spell the word, hardly know how to spell the word artistic director. We just did. We just knew that that's what you were supposed to be called. And we went to a business course, went to a few business courses before we'd even made anything in a rehearsal room. And that's, I think that was the, 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 what became ingrained in those business courses. And they were kind of, you know, it's in South Wales. It's like we've always said, we were sat next to, there was one business course where next to me there was a pig farmer and next to <laughs> Vicky there was a mobile hairdresser. And we were all there for the same thing. So yeah, it was very kind of levelling mm-hmm. to think that the, the concerns of a pig farmer were the same as mine in lots of ways. You know, supply and demand and the, you know, the returns on things. And he was making kind of you know getting really angry about the kind of you can't tax a pig carcass at one point and I was like god oh, that's really interesting but it's you know that <laughs> knowing, knowing that that was the kind of doesn't matter how brilliant your artistry is if you're not coming from that point of I mean I'm not saying that we're kind of mercenary kind of economic geniuses about we made mistakes financially a lot we made structural cock ups and we made budgetary cock ups and all of that but we had a really good grounding, which was that you know we were in the office, we were looking and sticking, uh, we were picking up the phone, and we were, you know, figuring out whether the van needed to kind of be, you know, serviced and how we could save money on that, and all of that was part of frantic asse- frantic mm-hmm. assembly. So you had a sense from the very beginning of uh, how difficult it is to actually build a career in theatre. No. No, <laughs> had no idea. Uh-huh. You just did it as you learned as you went. Yeah, and it was it was it, it was it was hard. It was hard in the sense of you know we said we, just said we had very little money. Mm-hmm. So, we, but in some ways, all of us, the, the whole company, and you have to remember, we were we were literally were in the, we were in the van. We'd, we'd be staying at somebody's house. We'd get in the van in the morning. We'd drive somewhere. We'd come. We'd get into a theatre. We'd put the set together all together. We'd go and have a bit of food. We'd come back. We'd rehearse. We'd do the show. We'd take the set down. We'd put it in the back of the van. We'd go somewhere else. So it's like we're just this kind of entity. And we toured for a year. We toured each show for a year. We'd do open it in Edinburgh, and we'd tour it until kind of June, July, and then make a new show. Go to Edinburgh, tour it. So we only saw each other. And none of us had any money. Now, I don't mind having no money as long as everybody else has got no money. So it's not like one of us went to kind of, you know, Gordon Ramsay's restaurant and the rest was in a, in a fish and chip shop. It was completely collective. And, you know, if anybody got a really exciting book, we could all read it. Or if somebody bought a great CD, we could all hear it. So the collective kind of purse was that we all, you know, we all heard that Radiohead album on the first day it came out because Kate was a massive radio, Radiohead fan, so she was responsible for Radiohead CDs. <laughs> and, uh, you know... I was responsible for the occasional kind of, you know, Don DeLillo's new novel. It was there, you know, it was in the van. So that thing about the, the kind of, and the cultural experience, you know, Kate always got The Guardian in the morning, so we all had a copy of The Guardian to read. In the, you know, it, it's that thing about necessity and, and being a group of people. It was, it, was, it was brilliant. I would never do it again. It was, it was absolutely of a time and of a place, and we were 20-somethings, and yeah. it didn't matter, and we were making this work, and it, was, it kept going, kept going, and the success of the company was doing this at the yeah. same time. God knows if we'd have tanked, it would have been horrific, yeah. but it wasn't, and, it, and so it was, it was, it was energising, and, you know, and I think we knew it at the time. It's like, this is never going to happen again, um, because we'll just, we'll just die if we have to, you know, 
eat fish and chips again or buy an egg sandwich at 12, 12 midnight because we've got no money. But it was fine. It was absolutely fine. Did you start out with, um, you know, once Frantic Assembly was going, did you then start to uh, have a plan? Or was it just make the next show for the next year to tour? Yeah, we're, we're not those kind of people. I've got uh-huh. friends that have got five and ten year plans, and I think they're mental. Uh-huh. I really think they're mental. And it really helps them. It's how they sleep at night. I sleep at night just by closing my eyes, and it just happens. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, don't want to think about, yeah. <laughs> you know, 2015. I mean, actually, interestingly, now. Well, now you have to, in a yeah. way, right? Because you're booked. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I got asked to do a piece in 2015, uh-huh. and then once opens in Tokyo in autumn 2015. And if I'm honest, those things scare me rather than. Um, they don't offer me comfort in a way that I thought they would. Right. I get a bit nervy about that. You don't like to be locked in. I don't think it's so much that. It's just that thing about. I don't know if I'll be... Who knows if I'll be here? And then I think, well, who will... You know, there's, there's buses everywhere. Buses knock people down. I'm not, I'm, not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not fatalist about it. I just sometimes kind of think, oh, God, there's... Especially now these shows, like, the Japanese production of Once, I imagine that's going to be really kind of expensive and really complex. Yeah, I just think, God, I, we're responsible for something so, so far down the line. Mm-hmm. I, might, I might, you know, I don't know. It's those things that are kind of a little bit weird. I'm just not used to that. Sure. Did your did your early experiences uh, producing shows and being responsible for everything along with your um, other uh, collaborators? Did that uh, change the way that you deal with producers now? Do you have more empathy for what they do, or no more frustration? No. Because of what it's like? No, I really don't. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because we, we had. Um, Frantic as a company, it was inbuilt. There were two artist directors and a producer. Mm-hmm. So, th- and that producer has changed over the years, of course. But, but I've only ever worked with somebody in Frantic who has produced brilliantly mm-hmm. and made it happen year on year with such limited resources. And compared to some of these people, nearly swore again. Um, <laughs> some of, you know, it always happened, and, it, and we always had a, we always had our kind of aspirations, kind of you know, met. Um, and then that's why I find, I do find this world quite tricky. And there are some brilliant people, actually. I will say this much. There's been some people that I've worked with, in, certainly in America, who have gone the extra mile always, who've got maverick response, uh, responses to kind of how theatre should get made and are brilliant and inspiring. And then the other side of that is you are working with certain producers who I find unfathomable in terms of how they... I don't even know why they're working in theatre. Mm-hmm. I just do not know why they're here um, and so I can't I can't communicate with them very well um, I, I, I've yeah I've said I've, I've I uttered a sentence two days ago to my age I've got an agent here um, and I said something to I, I I'm, I'm really not going to repeat it but I said something I couldn't believe came out of my mouth about a producer uh-huh. and so that's harsh and I understand it yeah you know I, the economics of it make people work in a certain way but um and I'm not kind of I'm not a bleeding heart, but I, I know I know from experience and long years of experience that that that, that is not necessary. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to make work over and over again with very, with like four producers over frantic duration. All four of them did exactly the, not exactly the same approach to it, but they've all made this kind of approach to it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people um, they don't work like that, and I, I can't see why they need to. So it's it's tricky. I've been spoiled. 
yeah. as well. I, my formative years were, were in that world, and I've and my, you know up until very recently that has been my my kind of the way in which I've been able to work. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's rough. And some people only work like this, and they deal yeah. with it brilliantly. And and I've, I see them deal with it brilliantly, and I've just got to get better at that. What about when you're working at an institutional place like uh, the National Theatre, or you know that. Um, the National Theatre has changed a lot. I, I wouldn't be answering this in the same way if I was working there ten years ago. But I've worked only there. I've been working there since two thousand and six intermittently, um, and it's that's amazing. That's an amazing place to work right now. It's it's so exciting, um, and it's uh, yeah. You're, it, to say it's that monolithic piece of brutalistic architecture on the South Bank. It looks more like a prison than a, than a, than a theatre. And you get in there and actually it's, it's thriving. Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, you're working on a scale that's very public. All theatre is, ultimately. But um, particularly with Curious Incident, because it was, the, at the time, it's only just, actually, Fifty Shades of Grey has just, beat, has just beaten Curious Incident as the most um, read book in the UK, which is kind of soul destroying um, but when we were in rehearsals for Curious Incident it was the it was the most read book in the UK since modern kind of figures uh-huh. so so you, we go into the rehearsal room and you're like oh Jesus Christ we've got this book behind us and, and it's at the National and the rehearsals were genius you know it was just Marianne for one but also the building it's like the thing but just, just make it just just go just you know uh-huh. do what you need to do so the National's brilliant National Theatre Scotland amazing National Theatre of Wales, incredible. You know, we've, uh, the UK now is it's it's we're, we're, having, we're having a kind of bit of a golden period. Mm-hmm. Vicky Featherstone's now just taken over the Royal Court building, so you know that's that's all you know up for grabs. So it's it's yeah, it, people working in the UK right now, it's it's uh, it feels very special, mm-hmm. which is why I'm spending half my life over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll ask one last question, and then we'll go to questions from the crowd. Um, what has uh, all of your recent success, I guess since Blackwatch, allowed you? And is there any way that you find it to be a hindrance in a way? Uh, that's the kind of tough question. <laughs> because I will say that, of course, in anybody's working life, there's things that bug you. And there's things that you end up going home and moaning about. Um, so yeah, there, there there are things that are, that I have moaned about. Bottom line is, I've got I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet. As as are you know anybody that's working in the arts that feels in even remotely satisfied. It's you know I I can't I can't I can barely hear myself sometimes because it just feels kind of faintly ridiculous. Um, it's it's an absolute unmitigated privilege, and that's that's the truth of it. And you know myself and John Tiffany actually we're 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 the worst and the best because we sit down and we moan and when we get back through about five minutes then we're both like we've got to shut up <laughs> we have to shut up this is absolutely preposterous so um, I'm not being evasive I just think uh, I, 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 bec- I would want to kill myself talking about the problems because uh-huh. they're, they're by far outweighed by the, their kind of, the kind of life experience of working like this which is bigger and better than I, I ever ever dreamt of Great. Well, thank you. And uh, let's take some questions from. Is it Christine up in the box? Yeah. Can I the lights so. come down just a bit? Because I can't see yeah. anybody. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Let's see who these questions are coming from. 
I was interested to hear a little bit more about the process with the vast menagerie. Um, excuse my ignorance about this, but it, the distinction between what the director does with a play as conventional or somewhat conventional play and what you bring to the process, is it a heightened sense of movement or, uh, I mean, how do you collaborate with the director on a, on a straight play like that? Um, well, first of all, we, we highlighted all the stuff that Tennessee Williams mentioned himself, about the, the physical characteristics. And then, in lots of ways, with a play like that, there's a lot of table work where they talked about the relationships between each other. Yeah. And so then I, I was privy to that. So then I asked them just to play out a physical sequence which, which matched that physical relationship. So, so um, there was an exercise where I asked Zach... Zach um, what he thought about his mother, and he felt well. Ultimately, if I was my better self, would, would try to protect her and wrap her up in things to save her from the world because she feels dynamic and she's not. So we created a sequence where he did that. You know, so in lots of ways, it's it's kind of looking at existing thoughts or facts that the actors have about their characters in relationship to each other. The, the play won't necessarily play out because it's it's sub subconscious or subplot or subtext. Um, so once you, I mean, and a play like that where there is such a kind of rich, uh, fertile ground for actors to have those opinions of each other, spoken or unspoken, this person's job is, is relatively, my, pers- my job is relatively easy because you, you hear that and you go, okay, well, well, we'll run that exercise for you and we'll, you know, Celia's response to her own mother, we'll have that, we'll give you a, a chance to explore that. And, you know, it'll be non-verbal. And the actors have already talked about it. It's not that they're guessing that this is what they believe is, is part of their relationship. So you say, well, why, can, can, I, can I have a look at that then? How and they play that, out. How much of that ends up in the production and how much stays in the uh, rehearsal room? There's, there's quite a lot that didn't ha- end up in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's... I mean, the glass menagerie's got... It's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot going on, but it's very small. It's kind of the most understated thing I've, I've worked on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a moment where Zachary has both his hands behind his back and his fingers do this, which came from... Um, the idea about him being um, manacled by his mother. Now, if you're not sat on house left um, during that scene, you don't you, you don't see Zach's hands. And for me, it's about Zach as an actor getting through that scene and just giving him little depth charge moments, physical moments, where he's locking into what's happening to him and his mother. I don't think the audience need to see all of that. I love the idea that half an audience are watching this guy's hands wrap around and, and do this thing which you can't see right now, but I'm doing something with my hands. Um, but But... Those, it was nice working on it. It was great working on a show where it wasn't so brazen and it was about mapping an actor's journey and, and so you get flavours of things and you catch some things and other things you don't. Um, and for somebody in my position, that's, that's a really refreshing way of looking at a piece of theatre, particularly a play. Yeah. And just in terms of the practical logistics, I mean, when did you come into the rehearsal process? How, how, how I, had two in, I had two intensive sessions with them which were about, they'd done, they'd done some table work, so they understood the characters, then I did some like intensive days, and then I went, left them. They rehearsed things on their feet for a bit, and I came back and did another intensive session with them. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, how did you begin in your movement and dance training growing up, and how did that evolve into your passion in your career now? Um, so I, did, I studied English at university, 
and the, the traits of I, I came out of university a fantastic English academic and <laughs> not much of a choreographer so we just brought choreographers in to direct the frantic pieces and we knew some we, we got to know really good choreographers um, so we learnt on the job so every year we'd have a different choreographer come in and make a piece with us and if I'm honest that, that was the training that we had uh, over kind of four or five years there were kind of four choreographers that came in and worked with us and just seeing other, other people's work that we connected with so it was about experiential and, it, and very pragmatic and very practical we learnt a, a skill a kind of choreographic style and we had to make a piece using that style so it was it was kind of it was really simple in lots of ways and, and you know over time you kind of you, you lose bits and you gain bits and we're kind of magpies in lots of ways in terms of what we hold on to and what we let go of um, but yeah it was, it was, it was that that was really our, our training, physically. Uh, what are some of the differences have you seen in the role of the movement director compared to America and Britain? Um, well, in, in the UK, it, it's only been a recent, uh, the last kind of five or six years, it's really kind of become a deal, a, a kind of, you'd expect to see the words movement director on a, on a poster. And for, and for anything, you know, Wuthering Heights movement director, um, you know, Bombay Dreams movement director, of course. But, you know, um, I'm waiting for the day when, the, um, when there's a movement director on Not I. Is it Not I? The Samuel Beckett thing with just a mouth? Yeah. <laughs> That's when it really kind of, you know, really achieves something. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, most directors now f- are, are considering that as part of their palette of, of creatives. So I, in, the, in, the, in America, I'm not, I'm not as, as kind of wised up on that. So I can't really speak on, in terms of how it, how it is over here. I, I'm just aware that in the UK, it's, it's a very kind of it's a very normal thing now to have those people in a room. And there's and you know there's some brilliant people doing that that work. But it's not it's, it hasn't always been that way, um, and certainly wasn't seen as a requisite. Um, and directors were often seen as the people that would do like a physical day, which was always horrible. And I, you know I've been in those rooms where you know that poor director and those poor actors have like a morning session. To develop their characteristic, physical characteristic, and it ends up with people on stage with humps and limps and kind of, you know, with arms, and it's horrible, horrible. And those days are kind of over, really. Thank God. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a if you know if I was if I was to say to anybody now if coming going into theatre, what should you be? I'd say be either a sound designer or a movement director, because those are the exploding fields within theatre, mm-hmm. certainly. Is there a young playwright you'd really like to work with? There's lots of young playwrights I'd like to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think playwriting, uh, certainly in the UK, uh, through places like the Royal Court, there's 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 masses of playwrights that are really coming through now. And and it's interesting. Uh, in the, I, I don't know if it's the same here, but in the UK, because there's a kind of sense of political apathy. Lots of young playwrights are writing very, very plugged-in political pieces of work, which are not kind of political with a capital P, and that's what makes them great pieces of art. But it's a very kind of, uh, it's a very incitive kind of group of writers that are coming through at the moment. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, and and also they're they're seeing, they're seeing lots of non-verbal work. I think writers are much more open to sitting in a room and letting physicality sometimes do their job for them. There's much more of that going on. I think the idea about a writer being in a kind of room over there that comes in and drops a kind of draft one into the room and disappears again, I think those days are over. Um, most actors want to be, in, most writers want to be in a room. They want to be part of creative processes. So writers, I think, are, are 
a really thrilling proposition now in a way that when they were taken as being these people that didn't want to be in a room they kind of adhered to that mode and it, for lots of them it didn't actually suit them or they didn't realise Bryony Laver had been a case in point so with Bryony we, we asked her to come in and we asked in the first workshop or devising period we'd tell her she can't write anything just, she can just sit and watch and we'll do one or two weeks of physical devising work based on the theme of the show and as a writer she, she, you know, that's, she's of a type that loves that kind of experience she doesn't have to lift a pen and the second workshop will be about some work that she's made that she's written but, but the first session for us is about facilitating a writer and I think that kind of culture is, is becoming more and more um, attractive to writers and because you know writers now they're going to see dance companies they're going to see you know they see lots of physical theatre they see movement theatre and all that kind of stuff so the, the kind of the spectrum is getting wider and it informs how people write you know certainly like Lucy Preble is writing very kind of intelligent work and it's incredibly structured plays but there's masses of space in those plays and so people like Rupert are making Rupert Gould are making great inroads into kind of visual theatre and physical theatre but um, yeah I think I think there are, there are the culture of writing is just sh- is shifting and makes for you know opportunities for people like myself really kind of exciting. So we have time for one final question. Uh, if there was one, if you could only work on one other show, going off on your fatalist comment, um, <laughs> the rest of your life, whether it's an adaptation or a revival or anything, what would you choose? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it would be, I would want to work on, I'd want to make a piece based on a Kate Bush song cycle called The Ninth Wave. And it was, uh, she released an album in 85 called The Hounds of Love. And the, so it was an LP. Do you remember those days with LP? <laughs> those two-sided things. Uh, side A was The Hounds of Love. It was a con- the kind of loose concept. And the side B was called The Ninth Wave. And it's a story of a girl who goes ice skating and starts to drown and the whole album is about her underwater and all the experiences she has and uh, and myself and John have talked about this piece f- since 1985 <laughs> when, we, when the album came out and we, we were kind of listening to it with our headphones on and uh, and we've approached Kate's management uh, last year given you know we've we've kind of now become a bit more confident in what we do and the management <laughs> have categorically said Kate will never, ever, ever work on this piece. You are not, you are not to touch it. It's not, never going to happen. So I'm kind of a bit like, uh, I'm a kind of, I've got my teeth into it now. So that's the piece I want to make before I die. So yeah, I, I yeah, that's that's the one. With, you know, I've got to just win Kate Bush over. I've got to do something. But yeah, that's that's the piece. And I, I think because we've been talking about it since 1985. Myself and John know every single beat of this show, every moment, every kind of effect. It's there. It's, it's a done deal. So it's, it's the easiest thing piece we'll ever make. And at the moment, it's the one that we're not allowed to make. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if I go to the grave without having made it, Kate won. <laughs> well, I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that it happens. Uh, thank you to everybody for coming. Thank, thank you. you to Stephen. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.